Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, I've been told I have about 30 or 35 minutes. If I tell you just a little bit about myself, I'm not going to have a whole lot of time, but here we go. Uh, My name is Jamie Saint. I am a husband of one wife, and I have six daughters, ages eight down to twins at um, almost nine months old. And I hear there's a family around here that has six boys, and I don't know if that... Yes, please. And I'm told that I'm supposed to meet them before I leave, and so uh, get some arranged marriages uh, worked out. Thank you. That is a solid lectern. You know, tonight what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to... Hey, guys. I'm going to share with you a story. This is not a story that I wrote. This is not a story that anybody that I know wrote. Well... I do know him. His name is God. See, this is a story that God began writing over 50 years ago. But this is just a small, small part of the story that God's been writing since the very beginning of time. See, the great thing about God, the great thing about stories that he writes is that he does not always choose the most capable. In fact, if you will, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 26. The great thing about God is He does not choose those most able. He chooses those who are most willing. He does not call the equipped. He equips the called. 1 Corinthians 1. As you're turning, I'm going to read. I'm going to read a few verses here. And then we'll get into a story. It says this. For you see your calling, brothers, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen, yes, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? The last verse here says, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know what? God does choose those who are most willing, not those most equipped. I think that's a great thing. I think it's an encouraging thing. I know if not to you, it certainly is to me. Now, if you don't believe that, if you just, you can turn just about to any story in the Bible. You can look at Moses. Moses had some sort of speech impediment. He did not want to speak. God took a shepherd who had spent 40 years in the wilderness and used him to lead his people to the, to the promised land. How about Gideon? Gideon was the youngest man in his family of a small tribe of Israel, yet God used him and 300 men to defeat 132,000. David. David was so, not even, not even to the point that even his dad would consider him to be a king. Because when Samuel came... David said, these are my sons. Samuel went one by one, and God told him, no, none of these. And he said, are these all your sons? Well, yeah, except for, well, David's tending the sheep. He said, well, call David. And as you and I know, David was called a man after God's own heart. 
You know, the story that I'm going to tell you tonight is a story of five young men. These young men were not the most capable, especially not where God put them. Their names, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, uh, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint. These men were talented in North America. They, they were very gifted men. But God called them to the jungles of South America. The four previous to Nate, they were missionaries serving out in the jungles, out in remote areas of the Amazon. Now, a lot of people, a lot of uh, uh, green tree huggers, that's what we call them in the States. A lot of people who are focused on the economy say the Amazon is almost gone. Those people have never been to the Amazon. I've flown over the Amazon and you can fly for days in any direction and all you see is trees. Well, that's what that's the area where these missionaries were serving. And Nate, he served right on the edge of the jungles. He was a pilot and he flew that little yellow airplane that you saw in the preview. He flew that airplane to serve and to bring supplies, needed supplies, medicines, food to those missionaries serving in the remote areas. These men were simply being obedient to the calling that God had placed on their lives. Now, to, to really understand the story I'm going to tell you tonight, I really need to tell you about the area of the jungles. You see, all these missionaries served in an area right around, well, one particular 6,000 square mile of jungles. And this was an area that nobody ever ventured in. In fact, even mentioning Alka territory drove fear into the heart of even the most brazen warrior. Now, Alka is a derogatory term. It means naked savage. The real name of this people group is called Waodani. It means true people. But nobody had ever gotten close enough and lived to tell about what they called themselves. The reason is, is because nobody had ever any, any contact in known history Any contact ended in killing every single time. Let me tell you a little bit about the Waodani. The Waodani had an egalitarian society. Now, if you don't know what that is, that means there's absolutely no laws. None whatsoever. In fact, there's no hierarchy either. There's no chief. There's nobody. In fact, parents, check this out. You can't tell your kids what to do. It just didn't happen. Even to this day, one and a half and two-year-old kids will sit there carving balsa wood. And I know I'm a parent. I don't let my kids and their girls, but two of them want a pocket knife. I don't let them play with knives. Here you have one and a half and two-year-old kids playing with eight-inch blades and not carving away from themselves, but carving toward themselves. But the parents don't tell them what to do because it just didn't happen. To really get an appreciation of of what I'm talking about, anytime you have an egalitarian society, there become some unwritten rules that take place. And in fact, in this area of the jungle in Waodani territory, there were four laws. Now, these were not written, but they were adhered to. You ready? Now, this is very important. If you're going to understand the story I tell you tonight, you're going to have to absolutely understand these four laws. Law number one, if somebody does something to offend you, ignore it. Well, that's pretty easy. Rule number two, 
If somebody does something to offend you and you cannot ignore it, kill them. That's pretty drastic from rule one to rule two, right? And we still have two to go. Rule number three, if somebody does something, or excuse me, if somebody kills somebody in your family, it's not only your right, it's your obligation to go kill somebody in their family. Hmm. Now we have rule number four. If you have to go kill somebody in somebody else's family, take a whole bunch of friends and wipe out the entire family group. That way there's nobody left to come kill you or your family. Ouch. That's just inside the tribe. That's not even dealing with outsiders. Literally, it was a society of death. Anthropologists have since studied this tribe and have named them the most violent society to have ever existed on planet Earth. Ever. They had a 60% homicide rate within the tribe. Another 20% were killed by outsiders, which left only 20% to be killed by all the creepy crawly things that live in the Amazon rainforest. Did you get that? 60% homicide rate. The oldest living member of the tribe at this point in time was roughly 35 years old. The tribe spread over 6,000 square miles was down to about 400 people. Nobody would venture into Waodani territory. No planes would fly over Waodani territory because even if you survived the crash, you wouldn't make it out alive. There was one exception. When my grandfather would take supplies, he would always purposefully fly over that territory because these missionaries had gotten together and they realized that, you know what? God called us for them too, right? God loves these people too. And they felt God's calling on their lives to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to people who lived in a society of death. So he would fly over. Well, one day... It was late in 1955 as he was flying over. My grandmother always standing by on the radio back in Shelmetta on the, on the very edge of the jungles. She heard this. Hey, Marge, I found him. I located him. And he gave her the coordinates on the map system that they had arranged of the, of the jungles. Day in and day out, he had flown over this area of the jungles, never, ever seeing anything until that day. He was ecstatic because God had given them a calling and now he knew where the people were. One small problem. There's no airstrips. The only break in the jungle is for rivers. Well, as God gives many people other than myself very creative minds, I I really have very little creativity when it comes to inventing things. My grandfather, Nate, totally different. He had one of these minds that they would go crazy. Teachers, any teachers in here? I think, Ian, you're a teacher, right? For those students in your class who are daydreaming, they may be actually coming up with an invention that God's going to use one day. Because one day, daydreaming in class, my grandfather, obviously not paying attention whatsoever, he invented what's called a bucket drop. He was thinking to himself, okay, Well, if I'm going to be a a mission pilot, because he wanted to fly from the time he was very young, he said, I wonder if I dragged a long line with a bucket on the end 
and made slow circles with an airplane overhead. I wonder what would happen. So he tried it with a, with a string and a pencil on the end. And sure enough, the pencil, you know, as he would make slow circles, the pencil, rather than going around the same way, it would go to the vortex of the cone and it would almost hang motionless. So he tried it as a pilot. And for 13 weeks in late 1955, he used this device that he invented while he was daydreaming in class called the bucket drop to show the Waodani not only that he could give gifts, but he could take it back as well. And he used the bucket drop. He would circle at about 500 to 700 feet above the ground, let out about 1,000 to 1,200 feet of line, and he would make those slow circles. And the bucket would go opposite the airplane until it hung motionless. He would let out more line, and it would drop straight down to the ground. And he gave them things like pots and pans, machetes, all sorts of things that they could not get in the jungles. Thirteen weeks they did that. Well, during this process, the Indians started giving them gifts back. In fact, one of my dad's first pets was a parrot that was brought up by the, by the bucket. They even got roasted monkey meat. Now, roasted monkey meat, if you've never been to the jungles, um, let me just tell you, it tastes a lot like chicken. It's really, really good. And especially if that's the only meat that they caught that day, it's especially good. 13 weeks. Finally, they decided, you know what? The time has come. It's time to make contact. It's time to go and person to person, face to face. My grandfather found a beach on the Kudadai River. And it was about 600 feet long. Those of you who are pilots in in the uh, audience here, 600 feet is not a whole lot. And especially on a curvy river. And you'll see in the movie later tonight how that whole thing worked. But he found it and he landed on that. And he started ferrying the missionaries and they did a prefabricated treehouse and they brought that thing in. They set up camp. It was early January 1956. And they waited. And they waited. Nothing. Finally, on January 6th, 1956, it was a Friday. Out from the jungles came one young man and two young women. There was no animosity. There was no fear. They spent the day on the beach together, sharing lemonade, looking at... They did everything. And in fact, the young man, he indicated that he wanted to get in the airplane. Finally, because they didn't communicate the same language, finally my grandfather understood that he didn't want to just get in the airplane. He wanted to go up in the airplane. And so my grandfather took him for a, for a ride, took him over the, uh, over the hut where he lived, over the little village, and brought him back. Well, George, as they called him, his actual name is Nankiwi. Nankiwi wasn't satisfied because, you see, just like when you get a new car, you don't care who you see while you're driving the new car. You care who sees you, right? I mean, it doesn't do you any good if, if you see them. You want them... Well, you know, the same thing down in the Amazon. One small problem. When they got over the village, George Nankiwi, he started hopping out on the strut of the airplane. This was not going to be good. Well, my grandfather figured, okay, I'll just grab them and pull them in. I haven't told you what they wear yet. See, their, their jungle costume was very simple. Wash took no time at all. I don't know, do you call it wash, laundry? I mean, the clothes would be clean. You just go take a bath in the river. See, their entire jungle costume 
was a string that went around their waist. That's it. Just the string. Now, if you didn't have your string on, you felt naked. But if you had your string on, you were just fine. Well, now, picture my grandfather. He's in the airplane. George is starting to climb out on the wing. What do you grab? Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) To make a longer story short, George did make it. They landed back on the river, had a great time. Well, then George and the younger of the two women took off on one end of the beach, and the older woman stayed there. And in fact, she slept down on the beach. Before sunset, before sunrise, she left. Because when the men came down from the treehouse that they had built, just for protection against the wild animals. She was gone, but the fire was still going. Well, let me tell you, these men were ecstatic because God had given them a calling. The calling was to go and reach a people who had never been reached. They had done that. They had made the first friendly contact. And so they they started putting these pieces together. They knew what the next chapter in the story was. Then now they were going to have the opportunity for the first time in history to share the gospel with a people who so desperately needed it. January 7th, 1956. Nothing. They hung out on the beach. No sign of any activity. January, January 8th, it was a Sunday, 1956. It was late morning and still no contact. So my grandfather decided that he would take the airplane up and just, you know, just see. Maybe fly over the village, show the Indians that they were still there. And he did. Well, if you know anything about the Amazon, there's three layers of canopy. So even if you're flying directly over, you can't see anything through the dense jungle. But he just so happened to fly over the river. And he saw a group of the Indians crossing. He failed to see what they were carrying, but he radioed back to my grandmother who was standing by on the radio. He said, Marge... Looks like they'll be here for the afternoon service. I'll call you at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock came. 4 o'clock went. No contact. See, shortly after 3 o'clock, my grandfather's watch stopped. These men and women who came to the beach, they didn't come to make a friendly contact. They were carrying spears, a lot of spears. They were carrying the very machetes that my grandfather and his friends gave to them. Shortly after three o'clock, the attack came. Multiple spears in every single one of their bodies. My grandfather had a spear driven right through his temple. One of the men's bodies was hacked so badly that the only thing connecting the top of his body to the bottom of his body was the front of his shirt. How could that be? See, they knew, the, they knew the story that God was writing with their lives. Well, what now? Is that the end? You see, we don't have to understand everything that God does. These men knew that. They were simply being obedient to the calling that he had given them. And you see, that's all God wants us to do. 
is to simply be obedient. Because while these men did not experience the next chapter, we know what the next chapter is now. Two years later, my great-aunt Rachel, my grandfather, the pilot, his sister, was invited with Elizabeth Elliot, one of the widows, to move back in with the tribe. She lived there until she died in 1994, living with the very people who killed her brother, my grandfather. Well, see, two years after that, my dad got to move in, and he got to start spending summers with these people who had killed his dad. But you have to understand the framework here. A lot of people ask, you know, did you have to forgive them? Well, no, we didn't have to forgive them. Well, how could that be? How surely you would forgive the people that killed you? Well, there was no here's why. You see, even before my grandfather ever made that first contact, very openly they had prayed as a family for these people, the Waodani that God would open up a door for them to reach them. After my grandfather was killed, my grandmother continued to pray daily for these people. My great aunt prayed for these people. Two years later, when my great aunt moved in, they didn't know if she'd come out alive. They continued to pray. So by the time my, my dad finally got to move in, he thought these people must be the, absolutely the most precious people God ever created. His dad gave his life for him. His aunt risked her life for them. And now he got to meet them. One small problem. Remember the four jungle laws, right? See, from the tribe's point of view, when my dad came in, he was about nine years old, but he was as tall as any of them. He had blonde hair and he had these black things that grow, that were growing out of his face. In fact, some of you have them too. Glasses. They didn't know what to think. So what they did is they sent one old grandmother. Now, old grandmother was probably in her early to mid-30s. They sent one old grandmother over to kind of check him out. He had no distinguishing characteristics. They needed to know if he's, a, if he's a man or a woman. Because if he's a man, then, well, if his dad was killed, then it's his, not only his duty, but it, or not only his right, but it's his duty to kill the men who killed his dad. So this grandmother went over and started patting him down, still couldn't tell. But there is one universal way to tell. In fact, I'm looking for a volunteer. Uh, So she went over. She grabbed his pants, opened them up, and started giving everybody a running description of what she was seeing. And from then on, he fit in. It was, he was just part of the tribe. You know, I have have a story to tell, and I only have about uh, seven more minutes left. But you know what? I'm going to have to skip that and maybe I'll fit it in one of the other times I get to talk. But I do want to tell you this story. In, um, in 2005, uh, just after we were traveling around with Minkai, Minkai is the, actually, he's the man who uh, killed my grandfather. He's the actual warrior who drove the spear through my grandfather's head. Minkai is a grandfather to me. And you'll have to watch the movie to kind of see how the whole thing takes place. I don't want to ruin it for you. In 2005, we were taking Minkai back to the jungles for a couple months before he would come back up to the States and uh, travel with us to promote the movie as it was opening in theaters. Well, I, I, it just dawned on me. It was, I, it was August. It was about the same time, 50 years before, that my grandfather was flying over these very same jungles looking for the very people that I call family. And here I am sitting in front of me as my dad, Steve Saint, the son of Nate. Sitting behind me is Minkai, the man who killed 
my grandfather Nate. And just as God would see just one small piece that says, you know what? I'm writing this story. I'm the one that's doing it. It's okay. It dawned on me that I'm actually named after my grandfather and the man who killed him. My full name is Jamie Nate Minkai Saint. That's cool stuff. You can't take an author here and they could write a story and actually make it be believable. You would say, that's hogwash. It's, no, surely that didn't happen. But when God writes a story, as he wrote this one, it is believable because it's a true story. I was traveling a few years ago up to a, uh, a large teen convention outside of Washington, D.C., to speak. It was just a couple weeks before the movie. It was actually the 50th anniversary of the friendly contact and then the spearing of my grandfather and his friends. And uh, a buddy of mine was coming with me and he gave me a book. And the book was How to Support Your Pastor. And as, as I was reading this book on the airplane, I came across one section and young people, if you will, young and old alike, but young people listen to this. He came across a pastor who was talking to college students. And it went something like this. He says, children, one day you're going to die. They're going to take your body, dig a hole, and throw your body in it. They're going to throw dirt right on your face. Then they're going to come back to the church and eat potato salad. He said, when you came into this world, you were the only one crying. Everybody else was laughing. When you leave this world... Are people going to be glad to see you gone or will they be crying because you're not here anymore? When they're back at the church eating their potato salad, will they be, talk, will they be talking about your titles, all the things that you accomplished in life, how many degrees you have, how far you went in business, or will they be talking about your testimonies? Titles. Once we're dead, they don't make any difference. Testimonies last for eternity. There was a young lady that I know, and uh, she, had, she had completed one year of college. And I think you call it university here. She had completed her first year of university, and she went to her dad, and she said, Hey, Dad, I want to go, and I want to go to the mission field for a year. And it was a Youth for Christ um, mission trip. It was going to be to India, Trinidad and Tobago, around the United States. He said, no. He said, you're my only daughter. I don't want you to go. You can't. And she said this. She was a good salesperson. She said, Dad. She said, if I take a year of my life and I only have a significant impact on one person, isn't that enough? Well, her dad was like, no, you're my only daughter. But as he thought about it, as he prayed about it, he said, yeah, you know, that's what we're here to do, to make an impact. Well, that year came and went, and she had an awesome time, and she came home to her family. The very day she got home, she had the family met her at the airport, took her back to the house, had a great time of celebration. In the middle of the celebration, she was 19 years old, young people. In the middle of this celebration, I'm sorry, she was 20. She complained of a headache. 
Ten minutes later, she was in a coma. And she died. When she had tried to go on a mission trip, she had told her dad, she says, if I take one year out of my life and have an impact on one person, isn't that enough? She did not realize at that point in time that that was the last year she had. She was my sister. You know, God, he doesn't, he doesn't tell us when our time is up. But he has given us today. If we look in Romans 8, 28, and I'll just quote it to you. This is an often quoted verse. It says, all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. We love to quote that verse. But we don't like some of the verses like 2 Timothy 3, 12. It says, yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Let me put those two verses together like this. Young people and old. God has a story to write with your life. He does not promise that that story will be easy. In fact, he promises that it will be very difficult at times. But if you let him write the story of your life, he promises to make sense of it before it comes to an end. Now, a lot of people, I know in church in North America, we like to write a great story with our life and then say, God, why don't you edit my story? We like to fly the airplane and say, God, you know, in an emergency situation, I want you here as my co-pilot. God doesn't offer. Listen, people, God does not offer to be your editor. He does not offer to be your co-pilot. He wants to write the story of your life. He wants to write every verse. He wants to write every chapter. He wants to write everything. And he wants you to let him do it. Once again, he does not promise that that story will be easy. He promises that it's going to be tough. But if you let him write the story of your life, he promises that it will be worth it. It will absolutely be worth it because he is the one that will make sense of your story. You don't have to. Loving God, loving others. Is it worth it? My grandfather, as he was dying on that beach, in the middle of the Amazon, out in the middle of nowhere, he had no idea how God would use the story of his life. Amsterdam 2000, a a big Billy Graham thing. I think there were something like 12,000 itinerant missionaries from around the world that showed up at this. My dad and Minkai and Tementa were there. This was only a couple weeks after my sister had died. In fact, they left only, I think, two days after 
We, put, we buried her body in the ground. And they asked this question, just on the spur of the moment, said, if you have been impacted to give your life because of this story, or if this story hasn't had a significant impact on your life, will you please stand up? Out of 12,000 missionaries from around the world, two-thirds at least stood to their feet. I don't know what story God wants to write with your life. I don't know. That's not for me to decide. What I do know is that he does want to write your story. He does. And all you have to do is simply be obedient to let him do it. So tonight, I'll simply end with this. Will you let God write your story? We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.